right, church. If you'll open your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah. Don't bother looking for the chapter because there's only one. So, we were singing just a little while ago, you are the one that we praise, you are the one we adore. And as I was singing that and thinking and and listening to all of you sing it together, I was uh, reminded that this is the gospel, that we used to sing those same lines, figuratively so, to ourselves, and now our hearts cry that out to our Creator properly. And so, whether uh, it have to do with our cultural moment that we find ourselves in or some heartache that we've experienced due to living in a, broken, uh, in a world broken by sin or due to our own sinfulness, we all feel this continued war within ourselves to uh, battle back the flesh and continue to submit and compel our hearts to cry out to God, you are the one that we praise, you are the one we adore. And so whatever the context, each Sunday I stand before a room full of people that I love who have questions. We all have questions. Uh, We all have these, these battles that we are waging within our families, within our individual selves, within uh, the larger context of how do we shelter our children from the culture while being within the culture and not of the culture? How do we continue to uh, show Christ's love while speaking the truth? And then also, how do we do that to ourselves within our own, our own sinful battles that we are fighting within ourselves? And so I want us to see, church, just as Obadiah wanted the people of God to be encouraged by the Word of God. I want us to see and hear and know that God's Word speaks into our cultural moment and every cultural moment, for that matter, compelling us to look to him and to say those same things. You are the one that we praise. You are the one we adore. So I'll ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Again, as we read from Obadiah chapter one. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwellings, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord." This is the word of God. God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before you, eager to have our hearts pierced and molded and shaped and refined, I pray, God, that you would help us to be focused squarely on seeking out whatever root of sin might be uh, attempting to infest and fester within our lives. And I pray, God, that you would help us to deny ourselves, die to ourselves, and to continue to walk in the newness of life which you have won for us on the cross of Christ. I pray that we would be compelled 
to do that this morning by your word. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know you as Lord, who does not daily look to you and say, you are the one that we praise, you are the one we adore, God, I pray that you would do that work in their heart for the first time, that you would draw them to yourself in repentance and compel them to walk in newness of life in Christ. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, church. So as we look, uh, as always, love to give us some, some context, especially as we've been tracking along in our series, reading through the Bible. And this is our first glance, our first uh, foray into one of the prophets, that being a minor prophet. Again, minor and major prophet is not based off the importance of the message. As you can see, it's based off the shortness of the book, right? So the author of this short but prophetic and powerful book is largely unknown. This is mostly due to the fact that the name itself, Obadiah, which means one who serves Yahweh, was a very common name in the Old Testament. Therefore, all we know about the prophet is his name. And that he was ministering sometime after the fall of Jerusalem and before the fall of Edom. Because we see that the fall of Jerusalem, just based off the content of the book, seems to be in the rearview mirror. And obviously a huge portion of the subject matter here is that the fall of Edom is in the windshield, lies ahead, right? So now, why is this information important? Not only does it contextualize the story for us, but I think it will help in the broader application of the message and help us to see just how relevant this message is for the church. So again, just to paint the scene for us, this is after the fall of Jerusalem. So God's people have experienced great shame, embarrassment, not to mention the loss and destruction that have occurred. And all of this at the hand of pagan nations, which they are now surrounded by, which seemingly have no opposition. So meanwhile, Edom stands uh, as the descendants of Esau, the brother who was not chosen by God, the representation of pagan sinful culture. And Edom still stands having taken advantage of God's judgment on Israel. They stand gloating over Israel, rejoicing in their fall. So can you imagine the questions and the protests which must be, which must have been on the people's heart at this time? How could God let this happen? What is God doing in these days? Where is he? How does he want us to respond? How are we to maintain covenant faithfulness in the midst of such a pagan culture now? Where can we look for the hope in the midst of such a bleak situation? And maybe you ask yourselves some of these same questions on a regular basis. And so, in this dark, distressing moment and into angry and confused hearts, Obadiah speaks these words. Looking back again to verses 1 and 2. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord. And a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. 
So we kick off things with a very familiar phrase there, thus says the Lord God. And this is common amongst the prophets as it simply states that the following words are not uh, original to the author, are not original to the prophets, not coming from the prophet's own thoughts or convictions, but these are the very words of God himself. And so that is what carries the authority and the weight of what is to come in, in these next few lines or chapters or verses, what have you. So now the next part, though, can be a little confusing uh, if you don't kind of follow the punctuation and just kind of follow what's happening here. Because we see, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord. So the Lord's not speaking of himself in the third person here. And a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rather, Obadiah is just giving some further context to what is about to be said from the words of the Lord. So because before, so before going straight into God's address, we are given some additional context into what is happening in that we see here God is providentially gathering the nations to be used in judgment against Edom. Now, we've seen this type of action from the Lord time and again as we've been moving through the Bible chronologically, and we've seen in the storyline of Scripture, both for and against God's people, God acting in a way in which he stirs the nations to act on his behalf. And I've made the statement many times in this series that the long arc of History bends to the will of God. And that's a continued theme. As we move and march chronologically through Scripture, you will continually see God bending the arc of history, shaping, causing censuses to happen, or floods to happen, or famines, or what have you to happen to accomplish His providential will. And that's what we're seeing happening here. And that's what God wants His people to be steadied in. As they sit in this moment of time in which seemingly everything has happened against them, they themselves have incurred God's judgment upon them. And so they've seen all that they hold dear crumble. But God wants them to be steadied in hearing this word of judgment against Edom. And he wants them to be steady in the fact that he is the one that is driving this vehicle of history. That just as he has acted in judgment against them, so he will act in judgment against Edom. And so here's the first thing I want us to know. It's the first point on your outline this morning. All of the Lord's actions lead to the humbling of man and the glorification of his name. Now, I know that seems like a pretty broad and blanket statement to make, that all the Lord's actions lead to the humbling of man and the glorification of his name. But when we consider all of the Lord's actions in the long arc of salvation history, we see this consistent theme that our hearts need to be humbled and God's name is due all glory and honor. Therefore, as God acts, even when he seemingly elevates certain personalities, or governments, or peoples. It all ultimately serves the purpose of bringing his name greater glory and humbling the heart of man. And we are in constant need of reminder of this truth, that our hearts need to be humbled before God, who is worthy of all glory and honor. 
Everyone wants to seek the Lord's elevation of their name. Everyone wants to seek the Lord's elevation of their brand. Everyone wants to seek the Lord's elevation of their family. But oftentimes it's in the humbling that the Lord shapes us, that he molds us and refines us to be used for his glory. And this becomes clearer as we continue reading. Pick back up in verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? So the Lord has risen up surrounding nations. He's using other pagan nations to defeat, he's to prepare to defeat this pagan nation. And he says, behold, I will make you small among the nations. And so if he's making them small, they must be puffed up. And that's what we find in verse 3, that the pride of their heart has deceived them. That they live in the clefts of the rock. They think that they are high upon the mountaintop. And they say in their own heart, who will bring me down to the ground? So what was the sin that God addresses right out the gate? The sin which God sets up as the root of Edom's demise. Pride. They assume that their standing, their power, their wealth was all due to their own achievement. That's the first thing that God speaks out against in the hearts of this pagan people. And the next point on your outline is that pride is the ultimate conduit of ruin. Pride is the ultimate conduit of ruin. And here's why I chose that word conduit there. Because a conduit is the thing which guides or channels or facilitates either the flow of water or in many cases electrical wire. So pride is the gateway. It's the facilitator, the guide to countless other sins. C.S. Lewis put it this way. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others." And so here's one way to think of it. As I was pondering this idea and this thought and this issue, uh, this festering issue of pride, is that uh, pride often begins with the but I statement. And that's how it sneaks into our life. Because we can often think of ourselves as not a prideful person. We can often think of ourselves as a humble person. But the number one way to tell about the pride of a person is if they tell you how humble they are. So here's one, again, a way to think of it is the but I statements. The moment that something starts happening in our life that really just throws a kink into things. And we say, but Lord, I, I tithe every month. I read my Bible, but I go to Sunday school, but how, I do this, I do that. I've done this. I've been so faithful here. I've done all these good things. How could you let this happen? We read this in Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And what's interesting there in that line from Proverbs is that statement, be assured. 
Why do we need to be assured of the downfall, the punishment of pride, of the fact that it's an abomination to the Lord? And I think we see the answer here in God's addressing Edom. The pride of your heart has deceived you. And that's the next sub-point there on your outline that pride deceives. It deceives us. It's sneaky. Again, the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others is what C.S. Lewis says. So if you found yourself strongly disliking the pridefulness that you see in other people, that might be a red flag that there is sneaky, deceptive pridefulness taking root in your own heart. Because pride would have us think that the gospel is foolish. Because pride would have us think that we, we don't need a savior. And here's one that's so sneaky. Pride would have us think that we are within God's will only to find out that we've made gods of ourselves. Pride would have us think that all of our best efforts are enough only to find out that we've allowed ourselves to become a Pharisee. Pride would have us think that we are the ones that are perpetually in the position of holding others accountable rather than submitting ourselves to loving critique when it's offered and needed. Pride would have us think that we are always the helper only to realize that we are the ones that need help. So how have you been deceived by pride is the real overlying question as we see God's utter disdain of pride. The question that you must be looking in the mirror and asking ourselves is how have I been deceived by pride? But don't just put it in the past tense. Ask yourself, how am I being deceived? by pride. Search it, find it out, and kill it. And you'll see why it's so necessary and we, as we continue to see the Lord's abomination and his uh, disdain of pride. Continue, verse 4. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down declares the Lord. So although it seems like everything is going right for Edom right now, although it seems like the night has won and the pagan prevailing culture is on the mountaintop, while God's people are in the valley, the taller they are, the harder they fall, is what God says. Another caution for those who feel all too comfortable at home in this world. Another caution for any of us that would be tempted to coalesce with the times and to retroactively try to contort God's word to fit and accept the norm. The next point there on your outline is that those who live in the penthouse of pride will wake up in the gutter of judgment. And I've said it many times, and pride is sneaky. So, and here's where pride is sneaky, because pride would have us hearing all of these references to pride this morning and solely thinking of our cultural moment in time. Solely thinking, again, that pride is an issue 
for others, which it is. Obviously, it's an issue, though, for all. Pride would have us thinking solely of the sin of others rather than the foolish pride which we have allowed to manifest in our own hearts. Those who live in the penthouse of pride will wake up in the gutter of judgment. Though you soar aloft like an eagle, your nest is among the stars. That is the very point from which I will bring you down. So do war with your pride, church, because there are two types of people here this morning. Either there are some who sit here living in the deception of pride, separated from God, not having submitted to Christ as Lord. And the other type is those of us who have submitted to Christ as Lord, trusted in the work of Christ on the cross, and believe that God raised him from the dead. However, we have put down our guard when it comes to our own pride and have allowed ourselves to become deceived. Jesus in Luke chapter 16, after telling the sons of Zebedee that they don't know what they asked, and he's speaking on the issue of money in Luke 16. And uh, he says this in verse 14 to the Pharisees. The Pharisees who are lover of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So they hear Jesus saying that you cannot be a lover of money. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And as we see in our cultural moment, pride is not just accepted among men, it's most certainly exalted. From the pride of LGBTQ ideology to the pride of Wall Street to the pride of the self-righteous pride of consumerism to whatever form of pride we indulge ourselves in. Pride is the exalted standard of this world and is an abomination in the sight of God. And as we continue reading, we see how the Lord dealt with it in Edom. Pick back up verse 5. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau, Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. So in other words, he's saying, look, even thieves, when they come and they pillage in the night, they even leave behind a little bit. He's saying, not so with the pride that I'm getting ready to condemn in you. There will not be anything left. If even grape gatherers came, they at least leave some behind on the vine, but there will be nothing left. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. So he's saying there's going to be nothing left. And here's the interesting part is where the Lord refers all the way back. So we've heard Edom, 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 and now we see this connection with the familiar line of Esau. Because now he says, not how Edom has been pillaged, but how Esau has been pillaged. You continue reading and you see all your allies, verse 7, have driven you to, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. So you're, you're not going to have any allies. You thought you had allies. You're going to be betrayed. 
Will I not on that day, verse 8 declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom? So all those whom you hold up as the wisest, they'll be destroyed. And your mighty men shall be dismayed. So all your strongest men, your wisest men, done for. Your, your strongest men, done for. So that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. And the Lord just continues and he says, because of the violence, so he reiterates here this continued connection between Jacob and Esau. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. You go all the way down and he just continues to say, do not gloat over the destruction of my people. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity, verse 13. Do not loot his wealth. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. So the Lord's given warning here. So to this point, you may say to yourself, okay, pastor, I get what you're saying about pride, I, but I'm still not seeing the application and how it's relative to the text so far. It's only a rebuke of Edom, you might think, or Going all the way back to make a connection to Esau. Pick up in verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So now we get to the crux of the issue that it's not just about the pride of Edom, but this is in continuation with the Lord's judgment against the pride of all nations. But that all nations have pridefully disdained God and worshiped ourselves. Therefore, God's wrath is coming against all pridefulness. And God uses this illustration of drinking that day is going to be like drinking and drinking until you can't drink anymore. And then guess what? You'll have to drink more. And what's the drink of God's choosing? Because you don't get to choose what this drink is. The drink that he's saying you're drinking is his wrath. And that's the next point there. A prideful heart will drink from God's wrath. Friends, if you haven't seen it Hear it now, that all of us were lost in the pridefulness of our flesh. And those who remain in the pridefulness of the flesh, those who relish it, will drink from God's wrath. But there's hope. Pick back up verse 17. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. And it shall be Holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. 
And so now we kind of draw to the conclusion of what the point was in bringing up this connection with Esau and Jacob, that those, that there will be an escape, there's possibility of escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph, so going still further to Joseph, and the house of Esau will be stubble. So those who find themselves under and remain in the pridefulness of the flesh and those who relish it will drink from God's wrath. Those who are under the house of Jacob will find escape. Those who gleefully dwell in the house of Esau will be stubble. So Paul uses God's providence in the story of Jacob and Esau at, as the very example for God's election of his church. In Romans chapter 9, we read this. In verses 13 through 16, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part in that he chose Jacob and not Esau? By no means, Paul says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Church in Christ, God has provided escape from the cup of his wrath. For all those who will crucify their heart of pride and walk anew in him. And that's the final point there on your outline, that Christ has drank the cup that humble hearts may find refuge in him. That our only escape is to be under the house of Jacob. Well, who allows us as Gentiles to be grafted in to the house of Jacob? It is only through Christ. As Jesus was preparing to go to the cross, he labored in prayer. And so he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he tells the disciples to stay there, to remain awake, to be vigilant with him. And in Matthew 26, verse 38 through 39, we read this. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So be vigilant. Stay here. Participate in this. In verse 39, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so Jesus comes back, finds the disciples sleeping. We know that's part of the story, right? Wakes them up, rebukes them, tells them to remain awake. And he goes again to pray. And he prays this in verse 42 of Matthew 26. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Christ has drank the cup that humble hearts may find refuge, may find escape in him. So the only choice is to either remain in the house of Esau and relishing in the pridefulness of the flesh or to crucify that heart, that prideful heart of stone, submit to the work of Christ on the cross, submit to his drinking of that cup which is still to be poured out, which was fully poured out on him on the cross, 
submit to that and be grafted into the house of Jacob and find escape from pride, escape from the brokenness of this world.